the baby Moses here is placed in a basket. The actual Hebrew word is teva, which is normally translated as ark, as in Noah's ark. So Moses is like a new Adam, and Moses is like a new Noah. This is a new creative and redemptive work of the Lord. Moses heralds a new era, and Moses effects a great salvation. That's what we're being told here. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Moses is like a new Adam, and Moses is like a new Noah. I'm not sure I've ever thought of him like that, but here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 1, we saw that the people of Israel were being blessed in the land of Egypt. They were growing and multiplying so much so that they began to be perceived as a significant threat. The Egyptians sought to deal with this threat by subjecting the Hebrews to harsh and ruthless labor. They thought that if the men had to travel a great distance to various construction projects, there would be a decrease in spirit and a decrease in fertility. If the men weren't home, then in theory, there ought to have been fewer pregnancies. And if spirits were in decline, there also ought to be fewer pregnancies. That was the plan, but it didn't work. Exodus 1 verse 12 says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Closed quote. So the Egyptians decided to up the ante. They enacted a form of targeted genocide, but they tried to do it through the agency of the midwives who courageously refused to participate. So at the end of chapter one, Pharaoh issues a blanket edict to all Egyptians generally that every male child born to a Hebrew woman was to be cast alive into the Nile. That was the desperate situation that the Israelites found themselves in at the end of chapter 1. We pick up the story now at verse 1 of chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now let's just pause here quickly and notice what is said about this child. We notice, first of all, that he is a full-blooded Levite. He is from the priestly tribe, or what will become the priestly tribe. We notice, second of all, that he is described in the ESV as a fine child. The New King James Version describes him as a beautiful child. The Hebrew expression that is used is the same one used back in the creation story to refer to God's assessment of Adam and Eve. Thus, the JPS Torah commentary says here, This parallel suggests that the birth of Moses is intended to be understood as the dawn of a new creative era, closed quote. There was definitely something about the appearance of Moses that signaled the divine favor. So, for example, Stephen, in his sermon in Acts 7, when he was summarizing the history of Israel, says, At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, Acts 7, verse 20. 
Similarly, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Close quote, Hebrews 11.23. So there was something about Moses, even as a baby, that clearly indicated that the favor of the Lord was upon him. And his parents, therefore, acted in faith to protect this child that they believed had been sent by Almighty God. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now we need to pause again quickly here because there is another linguistic connection to the foundational narratives in the book of Genesis. The baby Moses here is placed in a basket. The actual Hebrew word is teva which is normally translated as ark, as in Noah's ark. So Moses is like a new Adam, and Moses is like a new Noah. This is a new creative and redemptive work of the Lord. Moses heralds a new era, and Moses effects a great salvation. That's what we're being told here. So Moses' mother made an ark out of a basket. And she covered it in bitumen and pitch, and she anchored it out in the reeds of the Nile. Now, remember, Pharaoh had just authorized his people to throw any Hebrew baby boys that they found out into the Nile River. So Jochebed, Moses' mother, had to come up with a plan. And the plan was to put baby Moses in a basket and to wedge the basket or anchor the basket in some way into these reeds so that she could go out and feed him and change him, but leave him otherwise out of sight and out of danger should any Egyptian wander by. Verse 4, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So Miriam was on watch duty. She was keeping an eye out. She was probably between 8 and 11 years old at the time. Verse 5, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, it is not entirely clear whether this encounter was on purpose, from Jochebed's perspective, or accidental. Meaning, did the basket somehow come unstuck from the reeds and drift down to where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing? Or was it put there on purpose because of something that Moses' mother knew about this daughter of Pharaoh? Of course, we can't know because we aren't told. What we are told is that this daughter of Pharaoh had some gumption. 
She defied the order to throw Hebrew baby boys into the Nile and instead adopted this Hebrew boy for her very own. Miriam, who was watching on, volunteers to locate a wet nurse, who of course would be Moses' own mother. So Pharaoh's daughter agrees to pay for this wet nurse. So Miriam goes and brings her to Pharaoh's daughter. Thus, Moses' mother now had legal cover to continue to nurse and raise up her son, all paid for out of Pharaoh's purse. Now, in that culture, children weren't fully weaned until they were three to four years old. So during this time, Moses would have been mostly in the custody of his biological mother, though no doubt being told that at some point he would need to leave and live with his adopted mother. Pharaoh's daughter gives him the name Moses because she drew him out of the water. This actually was not an uncommon name at that time. We have historical records of two different Egyptian officials named Moses from the same time period. It is a simple play on words. The name itself means to be born, but it also sounds like the word for draw out. So it is a name with a double meaning. This is the child who was born by being drawn out of the River Nile. Of course, the Bible reader senses a third nuance to the name because this is the child by whom God will draw out and give birth to a people for himself. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, here with this narrative, we have skipped forward about 35 years in the timeline of the story, which, of course, was a very common way of telling a story like this. We think of the Gospels, for example. In Matthew and Luke, we get a brief birth narrative, but then we skip forward to when Jesus was around 30 years old. So it is here. This story introduces us to Moses' essential character. Even though he was raised in Pharaoh's court, he continues to identify with the plight of his own people. He has the personality of a rescuer, but he has yet to learn that God's work must be done God's way. So his first effort at being a redeemer was a colossal failure. Moses must learn how to be the shepherd of God's people. So he goes on something of his own personal exodus. He flees Egypt and ends up sitting by a well in the land of Midian, what today we would refer to as the Sinai Peninsula and eastward. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can. I've always found that detail in the story absolutely fascinating. Moses' first attempt at leadership was just a disaster. He was clumsy and overconfident, overly aggressive, and so God sits him on the bench, we might say, as it were, for 40 years. That's an awfully long time, 
And that means, if my math is correct, that Moses was an old man, about 80, when he began to serve as the leader of God's people. That's that's incredible. Uh, but I wonder what that says to our leadership development models today. Are we putting people into positions of leadership too early, or was this an exceptional situation? Well, I do think it's interesting that in the Bible, youth is not glorified the way that it is today, particularly in the church. In the Bible, age is generally associated with wisdom and understanding. So, for example, Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Amen. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm looking right at that. Proverbs 20, verse 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. So we've got you covered on both of those uh, verses, obviously. But the biblical (laughs) worldview suggests that when we're young— We're filled with strength and energy, ambition, and aggression. And that can be good. And there are certain obvious applications for that. While on the other hand, when we are old, we have wisdom, discretion, prudence, and understanding. That would be the general view of the Bible. And it seems to play out that way in this story about Moses. But that isn't to say that no young person should ever be entrusted with leadership within the church, right? Right. Absolutely. This is a story not a commandment. And in Proverbs, we have principles and generalities, not promises or absolutes. So generally speaking, young people make great soldiers, but bad leaders, whereas older people, generally speaking, make poor soldiers, but good leaders. These are generalities, but we see exceptions. We've talked about this sort of thing before. Timothy was young, and yet Paul entrusted him with authority and commanded him to act with boldness. All right. So that I I would say in general, in the church, we've made a bit of an idol of youth and we would probably be wise to correct a little bit, not all the way, but a little bit toward the general worldview in ancient society. And the one that we see reflected in the Bible, a little more preparation, a little more affliction and a little more experience might be helpful before we hand over the keys to the store. All right, that makes a lot of sense. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 16. Verse 16. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. From this brief narrative, we are again reminded of Moses' essential character. He is a rescuer at heart. He was obviously a man of action and of courage. He stood up and saved them. That's who Moses is. And much of that personality will be retained. God doesn't obliterate our personality, but he does prune, shape, and refine our personality. And God will be doing that with Moses over the next 40 years. 
Moses thinks that he has failed his way out of God's purposes. He believes that he is now a permanent exile. He settles in to the family of Reuel, who is elsewhere called Jethro, and he names his son a child of wandering. But God is not done with this man. Verse 23, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, of course, to say that God remembered and that he saw and knew is, of course, to make use of accommodated language. God does not forget anything, nor does he ever know any more or less about anything. Nevertheless, this language is used to help us understand something important about the character of God and what it means to be in covenant relationship with such a God. J. Alec Machir puts it marvelously as only he could do. He says, Here is God represented as though he woke up one morning, the phone rang, and when he lifted the receiver, he heard the voice of his people in Egypt saying, We're in such a pickle. And the Lord said to himself, by George, I'd quite forgotten about them. Of course, it did not happen like that. But God is represented as though his elbow needed jogging. And our prayer did the trick. Thus we learn what a marvelous and potent thing his people's prayer is. Close quote. Well, I think that is absolutely fabulous and absolutely correct. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the mighty hand of God. The Lord has his own sense of timing, but he is never indifferent to the prayers of his covenant people. He hears, he cares, and he comes. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, at the end of that episode, there's a line about prayer I'd like you to come back to. You said, quote, "'Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the mighty hand of God.'" Can you unpack that for us a little bit? I I think sometimes that we really aren't as sure as Christians why we pray at all. If God is sovereign, if he knows the beginning and the end anyway, then what difference do our prayers really make? Can you address that question? Because I, I think a lot of believers really struggle with that. Yeah, it is a common question. In fact, I'd say it's probably one of the top 10 questions that pastors get asked If God is going to do whatever he's going to do, then why should I bother to pray? And of course, the short answer to that question is because the Bible says so. The command to pray is one of the most common commands in all the Bible. So you should do it regardless of whether you're capable of understanding how divine sovereignty and human responsibility go together. P.S., none of us understand exactly how divine sovereignty and human responsibility go together. We just know that they do. The Bible says that God sees the beginning and the end and is, in some sense, the ultimate cause of everything that happens. So Deuteronomy 32, 39, for example, says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Okay, that's all-encompassing sovereignty. And yet... The Bible also says, sometimes you have not because you ask not, James 4, 2. So obviously prayer matters. 
I'm, I'm not sure there is a verse in the Bible that provides the precise formula for understanding this, but there is a picture that makes a great deal of sense to my mind, and it's found in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, the apostle John sees a vision of the throne room of God. Verse 6 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Closed quote. All right, so in that scene, the prayers of the saints are gathered up in bowls like incense, and they are connected somehow to the unrolling of the scroll, which represents the outworking of God's redemptive purposes on the earth. Now, that story continues in Revelation chapter 8. There, in the opening five verses, it says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Closed quote. So there, the gathered up prayers are burned like incense before God, and the result is that fire and thunder and lightning and an earthquake are unleashed upon the earth. So the picture is prayer up, action down. Do you see that? Yeah, I'm seeing that. That was just a fantastic explanation. That is so cool. So our prayers influence God to carry out his purposes down here on earth. Yes, and God wants it to work that way. He is going to do what he's going to do. Our prayers don't alter his purpose, but they do activate his purpose. Yeah, I like that. Exactly. It it, it reminds me a bit of the water park at Canada's Wonderland. There, <laughs> there's, a, there's a giant elevated bucket there <laughs> that, that has a hose pouring into it. And once the bucket is filled to a certain point, it tips and splashes out a huge load of water on whoever happens to be standing below it. Uh-huh. I know that bucket. I've uh, been a victim of that bucket a time or two. <laughs> exactly. Me too. Well, that's exactly how prayer works according to this picture in the book of Revelation. Our prayers go up, and when the fill line has been reached, providential action comes down. Now, it lands where it was always going to land, but make no mistake, it lands in response to the prayers of God's people. So, prayer works activates the purpose of God. It is the slender nerve that moves the mighty hand of God. Prayer works because God wants it to work. He designed it to work. God ordains the ends 
and God ordains the means. He wants to move. He intends to move in response to the prayers of his people. Amen. Boy, I like that a lot. And I can't wait to hear more about that in the weeks and the episodes to come. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 